Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WCWA Network. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California in theory. It's a joy, honor, and privilege to be with you all once again. And speaking of a joy, honor, and privilege, right here, right now, I get to I get to speak to sports journalism royalty right here, right now. I'm so excited to talk to this man because I've seen him uh, over the years. He, he He's... He, really great at, at, at doing what I do, but on such a bigger level and, and, and giving those hard hitting questions and getting those hard hitting interviews out there, especially with a lot of personalities from the pro wrestling world. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the one, the only, the incomparable Mr. Michael Landsberg. How are you, sir? You know what? I'm pretty good. And I noticed off the top, you were talking pretty fast. So just so you know, no matter how fast you talk, I can talk faster than you. So just be ready for that. Thank you for having me. Thank you for those kind words. And uh, I'm, I'm pumped to have some fun. And uh, just so you know, even if I'm a guest, which obviously I am, I may come back with hard hitting for you sometime during this. So be prepared for that. Okay, Carl? Okay, I'll, I'll be on my toes. I'll be on my toes, okay. Michael. I, I really appreciate that. Um, Michael, first question. Uh, before uh, you became an adult, when you were a young man, were you a wrestling fan growing up there in Canada? You know, I think everybody was a wrestling fan to some extent. Uh, I, I, uh, I mean, wrestling was so different then. It was all these kind of local looking promotions. I mean, I grew up in Toronto, right? So Sunday night, like if you would go to a Maple Leafs game, uh, a hockey game, they would always say, coming up Sunday night, Whipper Billy Watson presents. And, you know, there would be a wrestling card. And uh, I, I think that it would have been very rare in my childhood um, for a boy, especially, um, to say, yeah, you know what? I, I, I don't like wrestling. It was, it was just like, it was just part of, it was just part of our culture. It was part of something you did, you know, and it was so rare that you could see it, right? It's not like, you know, you had the Monday Night Wars, which obviously was when we started off the record. And um, now I don't know how many nights a week wrestling is broadcast, but back then it was kind of precious. And when it came on, you know, like, are you familiar with Stampede Wrestling? Of course, yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, in the be- in between time. I mean, like, like I had no idea when that show was on. And uh, it was a real treat when it was. Absolutely, yes. Uh, for, for me, as a fan, uh, you know, growing up, it was a, it was a lot of cherished memories. And 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 for you, uh, obviously, uh, I, I want to ask in a nutshell, kind of, uh, when did you first? show interest in uh, sports journalism and and how did that kind of eventually lead off to you becoming like a tv broadcaster for off the record okay how how uh and i'm being serious about this question how how long do you want me to give the answer because basically <laughs> you're asking me a question about you know like w- the major part of my life and how it all combined together to get me to the place that you're talking about so give me a give me a time right here time limit five minutes Five minutes. Okay, I can do that. Um, so start the clock, by the way. Seriously. Okay. Um, 
And then, uh, you know, Vince McMahon will do a run in and go, ring the bell, ring the <laughs> bell, ring the fucking bell. Uh, Survivor Series, that, that, was, uh, that was huge for us. But uh, I, I think that the answer to your question is my greatest blessing was the family that I came from. I, I came from uh, two parents who adored me and my brother uh, and, you know, really gave me the confidence to do things that uh, I would not have had the confidence to do. Uh, so that's that's one component that that played a factor as I was getting into broadcasting. The other component is that I have a learning disability. I have dyslexia and I have ADHD. And because of that, uh, school was easy for me, not because of that, but it was easy for me in high school because high school to me was easy. And I guess, you know, I have a reasonable amount of natural intelligence, which allowed me to get through. But then I went to the University of Toronto, which is a very scholastic school, and I had no business being there. Uh, the only thing I knew in life, though, was professional. My dad was an orthodontist. My brother is a nephrologist, a kidney doctor. I only had one uncle, and he was a chartered accountant. So everyone went to, um, went to, went to school to learn their profession. And I just followed everybody uh, through their paths. So my friends in high school all went to University of Toronto, and they all wanted to be lawyers or doctors or accountants or something like that. And I, I, I couldn't be that um, because school using the same work ethic that I had when I was in high school, it did not go well um, because you, you can't do that in university. You can't just skate by on, you know, based on, on whatever natural intelligence you have because most people around you have the same natural intelligence. But because of ADHD, and this took me years to understand, my brother, I, I said to him because my brother is, uh, you know, phenomenally smart. He got a scholarship to medical school. He got a scholarship to become an internal, uh, internal medicine. He got a scholarship to become a kidney doctor. I mean, like he was like, he was recruited by everywhere. The guy is a genius. And I said to him, you know, I think the biggest difference between you and I, and this was just a couple of years ago that I cannot learn things that do not interest me. And I said, am I correct to think that you can learn anything, whether you want to learn it or not? He said, absolutely. And I said, because like in medical school, you got to learn crap that you say, I'm not interested in this, but it's just kind of a building block. And he said, yeah, if I knew I had to learn it, I could. I couldn't do that. So school became, uh, university became a nightmare for me. Uh, and the problem I had was uh, I had no idea what to do with me. I knew after first, I probably knew after the first class, like where, you know, in first year, I'm going like, holy shit, what the hell happened? Did I get stupid over the summer? Uh, but then, you know, it's, it became clear to me that, you know, when, when you have seven books to read the morning of an exam, clearly you have not prepared well for the exam. So uh, fast forward through first year, through second year, at the end of second year, I get put on probation, scholastic probation. Uh, if you don't do better, you know, you, we're going to boot you out. Uh, and then in third year, I was parking my car to take an exam. And I remember it because this was a profound moment in my life. And I realized... I'm not going to take the exam. Why would I need to go in and find out, you know, again, someone tell me how stupid I am. I'm going to fail. I, I don't want to hear that again. And I promised myself the next day as I drove away that I would go into the campus radio station. Uh, and I went into the campus radio station and campus radio being what it is, not like, yeah, you know, you had to pass an audition to get on. So here's, here, here's the moment that changed my life. 
they said, okay, well, go on right now. And all I ever wanted to do was talk about sports, but I, I had no idea how one would go about having a career in that. So I get in there and uh, I push the red, the button and it illuminates. So the light is red when the microphone is on and I start to speak and I realize 20 seconds in, oh my God, I have found a place that's mine. I have found something that is mine, something that I can make mine, someplace I can pour the energy that I've had all these years into something. And that changed my life. And that, from that moment on, I committed to saying, okay, I want to be on television. I want to be talking about sports. And I know that I'm crappy right now because everybody is crappy at the beginning. It doesn't matter who you are. You can't say, okay, I'm going to be a broadcaster. And all of a sudden you're a great broadcaster. It cannot happen. So from that moment, Moment on, uh, I committed myself to uh, to uh, practicing every second of every day that I could. I knew that as a broadcaster, every time you do something, you get better at it. And uh, as I wrap up the story, my greatest asset, uh, I told you about my parents and how they gave me the confidence to be able to jump into something that, you know, as a, as a Jewish guy from a professional family, I didn't know a single soul who had gone into media or television or, or uh, like any form of media. But my greatest asset was the fact that I had no safety net. Carl, I couldn't, I, 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 I couldn't give it up because I had nothing else. There were no other doors open to me and there were no other doors that I wanted to walk through. So no matter how many times I heard, you're not good enough, or I would listen to myself and go, well, that's pretty crappy. No matter how many times I failed, I didn't give it up because I had nothing to give it up for. And that allowed me to continue. And um, the one thing I was gifted with was uh, a work ethic because I was so desperate to find something I could make my own. Wow. That's really awesome, Michael. And like, as you were talking about it, boom, I felt it hit me right there because I went through the same kind of thing. Um, when you mentioned that you have ADHD, I only got diagnosed with that about three months ago. Uh, things have changed a lot for me since then, uh, but I went through the same thing and and I, I can't learn anything that I'm not interested in. And I tried so hard and I couldn't do it. So uh, it was really nice to hear that from somebody else because it. So you're uh, happy about, you're happy about my mental illnesses. Good. Good for you, Carl. <laughs> See, that's, that's the smart ass in me. I know you're not happy about it, but I'll tell you, you know, the lesson I learned from that is if, if you and I would have had this chat a year ago before you were diagnosed with ADHD and I said what I said moments ago and talked about how like the biggest thing about ADHD for, for me was the inability to focus on something I wasn't interested in. I can hyper-focus on something I am interested in, but before you were diagnosed, if you would have heard me say, that would that have kind of struck you as well it kind of sounds like me i feel like that would have been like a lightning bolt that would hit me for sure it took and i'm 35 now it took all this time like 14 was when i started having problems with this type of thing and uh it, 21 years later all of a sudden um i find out that this is the thing this is the thing that's been my problem this whole time and I, when i hyper focus like when i do my research on an interview i am fantastic as far as i'm concerned but uh, other things i i'm just i just perform poorly okay this is an awesome moment for me because 
what you and I have just done and the conclusion that uh, that I've arrived at by asking that last question, it, it shows the power of sharing because, because I shared my story. I mean, it's not as relevant to you now because you have gone for help and you have been diagnosed. But if this would have been four months ago and you would have gone, oh my gosh, I think he's talking about me. I, I, maybe I can do something about it. That's the power of sharing your mental health, unlike any other illness because you you can't see your ADHD. It's not like, you know, you, you, you look at yourself and you know it, or they take blood or they do a biopsy or any of that. You know, it's, it's, it's so, it's so non-tangible that sometimes it takes hearing from someone uh, like me or you talking about it where people go, oh my gosh, he's talking about me. And that works for depression and anxiety and all of those illnesses. So God, you know what, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really happy that you started there and that my story led into your story. Absolutely, Michael. That, ah, that means so much to me. Um, so uh, again, thank you for sharing uh, about your journey into getting into where you got to in uh, your profession. Um, obviously, wrestling became red hot in the late 90s. And one thing I want to ask you a little bit about was uh, when it comes to, you know, the real sports, pro wrestling has always been seen as like the ugly stepchild. Was there any pushback uh, from TSN to have pro wrestlers on off the record um, or was wrestling so hot at that point that it was just easy? You know, it was uh, it was the latter. There was there was never pushback because, see, because first of all, TSN uh, owned the rights to Raw and Nitro, so it was a big property for TSN. I mean, so big that when I first, because when I, I mean, I had done Sports Center before uh, before Off the Record and never really paid attention to ratings at all. And then you start a talk show that's got your name on it. And, um, you know, you're, you want to find out, you know, how many people are watching, what they're engaged with, what works, what doesn't work. That's the learning process. And that's the beauty, actually, of kind of getting a report card every next day at four o'clock when the ratings come out. Um, so there was there was never a, a question of was it good for business for TSN, um, but what what gave us the ability to do it uh, and for me to justify in my mind was the fact that guests were one hundred percent out of character, you know they were one hundred percent you know it was not the hitman, it was Bret Hart, you know it was it was not the Rock it was Dwayne Johnson. And because of that, it's not like we had to, we had to sell out, you know, like, like if you're doing a show and you want some credibility and you have, uh, you know, uh, the rock on the show and you're asking about his character and you're, I mean, it's okay to have fun with stuff like that. Like I, I remember some things I did with him and I was like blown away by his uh, unbelievable talent. Like, like just, I thought, oh my gosh, this guy has something so intangible. But my point is that it was okay, I think, to, to bring that out. But we got to know these people and we treated them seriously and we treated wrestling seriously. And for that reason, it's not like we were, you know, we were selling out. It's not like we had an actor on from a movie and we got him on to play the role of the actor in the movie. Imagine like we had, one of the first big guests we had was Vin Diesel. 
Uh, and uh, I think it was Triple X was the show that, or the movie that he was promoting. Imagine if he was on and I started talking to him like his character, that would be, that would be bizarre and would mess with my credibility totally. So the fact that these were individuals, the fact that no one really had ever been given the chance to talk to them as them and not as their personas was huge for us. And it was, it was, let me tell you how it, it started on the first week of uh, Off the Record. I mean, we had no idea really what we were doing to start with. So, uh, you know, we decided uh, originally the show, uh, I wanted it to be four people, um, four guests um, from all walks of life. And we would have debate and conversation about sports issues uh, and management didn't see it 100% that way. So the, the agreement was that in, from them, you'll have three guests and one of the guests will have to be from, uh, from TSN one of the commentators, which I didn't really like because I know a lot of broadcasters don't ever want to take a stand on anything because it's not necessarily good for business. You know, they want to criticize. So we started this show with three guests on a panel. Uh, and on the Thursday of that first week, Bret Hart was one of the guests. And I have no idea how we got Bret Hart, um, probably just because Raw was on, on TSN. Uh, but he was on the panel and it was cool, right? And at the end of the show, he put me in the sharpshooter and it was just like, it was like kind of kind of neat. Um, but he said to me afterwards, and this was the start of uh, kind of a lifelong friendship now. He said, you know, and Brett, I, I, he talks very softly. It's really, it's weird how quiet and uh, introverted he really is. And he said, Michael, uh, you know, I thought that was good, but I don't need other guests with me. Just put me on. And that was the start of the idea of putting on wrestlers and doing a full show as an interview. And that, um, so that was actually his idea because, you know, he thought that, hey, w why do we have these other guests on with me when I got, you know, important things to say? And he was right. And then Survivor Series unfolded uh, and uh, Brett called us up and said, I want to come on and talk about it. And because of that, Vince McMahon said, I want to come on and talk <laughs> about it. I want to state my piece. So that was kind of how it launched. Wow. Yeah, I, I did watch uh, two Brett interviews from 1997 earlier with you. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll bring him up now uh, because I, I, I love watching Brett talk about anything because he's so honest He's always been honest. Can you tell me about your experiences with the hit man? Um, because, you know, so many uh, important periods of his life you spoke to him in. Uh, these, these are very important conversations in his life because a lot of the time was the first time that he spoke out when something really big happened, where it was the stroke or whether it was the, the screw job, et cetera. Uh, and before I, I, I let you uh, answer the question, I want to say that I agree with you that Brett is a Canadian hero. Thank you. I think it was, uh, was it Eric Bischoff that challenged me on that? Uh, Vince you know, was. Uh, was it Vince? No, no, I think, wasn't it Eric Bischoff when I said, you know, Vince, uh, Brett is a Canadian hero. And I, I thought it was Bischoff who got pissed off because he, you know, because back then Brett was still, I guess, uh, WWF. Uh, doesn't matter, though. The point is that you, you, you are right about, you know, the timing of getting to talk to him. You know, the first thing was the screw job, right? Uh, the second thing uh, was the death of his brother. Uh, the third thing was his stroke and his comeback from the stroke and his, you know, his 
flipping between hatred of Vince uh, and realizing he needs Vince. Um, you know, Vince means money to him, right? You know, he needs to make a living. And, you know, Vince kind of holds the keys to the castle. So I have had the opportunity to, to talk to Brett when he was sitting on top of the world and at different times when the world knocked him down. And I found him to be a, a really honest, compelling, and I think genuine guy. When you, when you listen to, to Brett, he doesn't exaggerate. He, you know, everything is said kind of in a monotone where if you just measured the energy level in his voice, you would think that, you know, it's kind of not that meaningful for him. And then you listen to what he's saying and you go, wow, you know, I, I, uh, I, you know, I feel blessed to have been in that position for us to have been in that position and for us to, for me to have got to know him. I mean, he took a shine to me right away and I took a shine to him right away. Uh, and because of that, we became friends kind of, uh, you know, uh, totally different backgrounds, obviously, but there was something that clicked between us uh, and he trusted me and that was great. That's really awesome to hear, Michael. Uh, and and you've mentioned Vincent Mann, so I wanted to ask about him because uh, I've heard so many people say of the years he has this intimidating presence uh, when you first meet him. How do you deal with uh, that uh, when you interview somebody like him, how do you deal with the, the intimidating presence, knowing that you're going to be giving him the hard-hitting questions? How, how, what process do you go through to to deal with that? You know, I, I think that, uh, first of all, that question is more relevant than perhaps you would even know, um, because uh, the challenge, the greatest challenge, is that doing that job off the record we had conversations with wrestlers as we're talking about today, but we also had conversations with commissioners of leagues and hockey players and coaches and general managers uh, and NFL people, like, like every single sport that you can imagine, um, we did interviews with. So now you, you're not just focused on one thing, you got to feel confident in everything. And to challenge a guy like Vince McMahon, the biggest challenge is you're talking to him and challenging him about his life. Like, think about that. You know, I'm trying to push him to give honest answers about WWE and trying to make it an even playing field. And yet this is his world. He lives in this world 24 seven. I only live in this world infrequently. So developing the confidence to, to say and ask the questions without fear of making a fool of yourself, because it could end right there where you, you, know, you say to Vince, oh, well, Vince, you know, I know a couple of years ago in WWE, you did this. And he goes, we never did that. And you know, that's, that's, that's where you're exposed and vulnerable, right? Ask a question that shows you don't know anything about it. And that guess that you're trying to push is going to come and push back. So for me, it happened when uh, the first time he was on the show, he was in the makeup chair and I was standing behind him looking in the mirror and he said something and I smart asked him, which is my way. Uh, I said something and he kind of gave me like a, like kind of a, like a little smile, like, Hey, you know, uh, good for you for saying that. I don't remember what it was, but I thought to myself, that was good. Not, not that it was such a funny line or anything, but I, I, I showed myself that I wasn't intimidated by him, that I could just be me and, and ask him these questions. And that changed my attitude like right there. And the other part is you, you just build up confidence when you do it enough times without embarrassing yourself, you start to believe that, yeah, you know, I can go into other people's worlds and I can talk to them about their worlds. 
Interesting. Interesting. Uh, there was something else I wanted to ask you about from, from your perspective as a sports journalist. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the footage of this, but what did you think about that infamous interview between Vince McMahon and Bob Costas when, when Vince got right in his face and, and was not happy with what Bob was uh, asking him? You know, I, I uh, that was particularly relevant to us, right? Because uh, what year was that? Do you remember uh, the Costas Ooh. McMahon interview? It doesn't matter, but if if you Late know it, 90s, fine. Yeah, De yeah. definitely so during the edgy that... attitude yeah. era. Well, you know, I think the answer is first of all, Bob Costas is is, uh, is a genius broadcaster. So, like, always has been like one of my favorite broadcasters, um, and super intelligent guy but I kind of felt like he was not treating Vince with the same respect he would have treated the commissioner of the National Football League or the commissioner of Major League Baseball or a baseball star. It was like he kind of had this attitude that wrestling was a joke, which is the opposite of how we treated it. And therefore we got a totally different reaction. See, Vince had no problem with me asking any question. I mean, I basically asked him, did you kill Owen Hart? And he had, he, had, he had no problem with those questions because he knew that we were treating him with respect. He knew that, that um, it was really good for him and his product to be able to answer questions that were you know, tougher than people who wanted to kiss his ass. And Bob Costas was the opposite of that, where he kind of treated it wrestling like a joke. And that's the one thing that wrestlers hate the most is you know, if they're not taken seriously. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about there, especially like in Australia, if like the WWE comes to Australia or if, if they're going to just be uh, uh, interviewing someone from a local independent promotion, it's always like kind of the wink to the to the camera and yeah. the yeah. kind of that tone of voice like and the wrestling came to us like we're talking about Santa Claus or something like that. Uh, it's right. always been like that. <laughs> you know, it's true with uh, with any guest from any walk of life that you have. Treat them with respect and there is a pretty good chance that if, if, if this is the line right here where, um, you know, the interview before you start the interview where you go, OK, I can't go past that because it's going to get really pissed off at me. So I got to keep it sort of underneath here. And then when you show them that you're treating them with respect, that you have prepared and that you understand uh, you understand what they do because you've researched it. Now, all of a sudden, the line is up here so you can go way further in asking questions and get honest answers without pissing them off because they know that you respect them. And the ultimate respect is is to treat them, uh, in the case of wrestlers, like like they're worthy of the research that you've done. Excellent point. Excellent point. Uh, and, and again, talking about Vince McMahon, you, you interviewed him many times. Uh, obviously, recently there's been a whole heap of news about Vince uh, allegations with the hush money for all these ladies uh, retiring from WWE. What do you think of all of this? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I lost touch with Vince. I haven't spoken to Vince in, in, in years because, you know, our relationship with WWE changed when TSN was faced with, because my buddy was running TSN uh, at the time. His name is Phil King. He was uh, vice president of programming. And he was faced with this decision, Raw on Monday night. Raw on Monday night gave them great numbers. I don't think it brought in a ton of sponsorship because wrestling was seen in a lot of ways by corporate Canada and probably by the people who were selling TSN as being kind of, you know, not the thing that you wanted necessarily to be associated with, which, which was ridiculous because you had a chance to get 
to a young demographic that you know you you couldn't get through hockey. Um, so what really ended our relationship with them was that Phil King, the vice president of programming, was faced with the opportunity to get Monday Night Football. So now, um, you know, the NFL comes and says, you know, we want to sell you the Monday Night Football package. So Phil says, you know, I, I, I'm not 100% sure I should handle how I should handle this because, you know, uh, Raw is on obviously on Monday nights. Uh, we're a sports network, so turning down Monday Night Football seems like a bad move. So he went to Vince and said, you know, can we show you guys on tape delay at midnight and try to sweeten the package for him? Uh, and Vince, uh, I, I don't know if there was like a, a period where he thought about it or whether they actually did it, but he ended up taking this to the competition, which you'd expect, right? Uh, and that was the end of the relationship between TSN and Raw and um, Raw and Vince, we're not going to, um, we're not going to give us the gift of, of their roster, right? Uh, and it's funny because they went to Sportsnet in Canada and Sportsnet didn't interview anyone, right? It was like, it's like they didn't, they didn't apparently know what to do with it. Um, so it was kind of Canadian um, wrestling fans lost out because now no one is doing these interviews. Right. And what do you think about him retiring from WWE? Oh, right, right. I forgot that. Uh, so I've lost touch with him. That was the uh, the start of the story. Right, yeah, um, yeah. Um, it's kind of like with me, sometimes I'm talking and it's like another shiny object. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> I'll go there and talk about the story about why Raw left TSN and why we no longer had a relationship with the WWE. And before I know it, I haven't answered your question. You know, uh, I, I never had a really a, a personal relationship. I didn't have any personal relationship with Vince other than uh, he seemed to trust me and off the record he certainly saw the value in uh allowing his uh his performers his superstars to uh to talk out of character uh he realized that was really good for business but i never knew him the way i knew bret hart for instance bret hart had dinner at my house ask me about that uh but Vince, it was it was strictly, you know, I, I would see him when I would interview him and we would sort of get caught up. But, um, you know, I, I don't I don't think it went any further than that. So my my answer to your question is I didn't know him well enough to know. But, you know, his 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 demeanor, his persona, uh, his swagger, uh, you know, even the characters that he played certainly suggested that he lived uh, a uh, non-conventional life, so to speak. Um, so was I surprised? Uh, no, when, when, you know, when he left. Do I necessarily believe all the stories? Well, I have no reason not to, but I have no reason to. So it's not like I'm judging him based on that. But uh, just from what I could tell, if, if you would have told me, you know, on the last interview we did with him that, you know, sometime he's going to have to step down because there's going to be these accusations, I wouldn't have gone, no way no way and yet there's people that i would say that about where you go no i can't imagine that actually being true right i just he was like from what i've heard from people he's such a workaholic and he slept like three hours a night or something crazy like that and just would have these power naps during the day i just wonder what he's doing is he just catching up on 70 years worth of never watching television and, and no. films <laughs> what could no he I, I you know guys like that who are this is true of anyone in any job, especially a profile job. If you let your job define who you are, 
if you are not Vince McMahon, uh, you know, husband and father and business person, if you're Vince McMahon, you know, uh, head of WWE, and if you are the characters that you have assumed, and that's taken away, it is really difficult to deal with. And I mean, most people don't have to deal with it the way Vince has had to deal with it because most people don't have his profile, right? They know he's one of the most famous guys in North America or around the world. Uh, so my story is, uh, is one where I can relate to on a, you know, a tiny level what that's like. So throughout Off the Record, uh, I, I always knew that I had this amazing opportunity, that I had this great job, that I could 100% be myself, which meant that half the audience liked me and half the audience thought I was a jerk, which I was always good with, right? You know, like there's no such thing as a wrong opinion. As long as you watch, I don't care what you really think of me because I know who I am. But, and here's the thing, Carl, all through uh, Off the Record, I forced myself to at least try not to let the job define me. So I didn't see myself as Michael Landsberg, the host of Off the Record. I saw myself as Michael Landsberg, uh, Karen's husband, Corey and Casey's dad, um, you know, Michael Landsberg, uh, Ronnie and Annalie, my parents, uh, you know, their son. I just, I, I worked really hard not to let it define me because you know it's going to be taken away. I mean, we we got canceled after 18 seasons. It's not like I went, oh my God, you didn't give me a chance. Only 18 <laughs> years? Uh, and also, I you know, I, I knew it was coming because TV was dying, right? And uh, TV, the way we knew it especially, was dying. And uh, I knew that they would just go, okay, well, you know, we could do nothing in that time slot and probably save money. But I, when I walked out the door on that last day for Off the Record, uh, I haven't thought about it really since. I've talked about it because we're talking about it now, but I haven't for a moment sort of lamented, oh, gosh, I wish I was still doing that show um, because I don't, because uh, that's a really dangerous way to live your life, if that all makes sense. No, that certainly does. Um, uh, we'll get away from any Vince talk. Now, I wanted to ask you about this one thing that uh, it was a story that I'd, I'd seen Val Venus talk about on a shoot interview were you aware that val had been ribbed by owen hart at some point in time and then literally moments before they were going to go on the air with you edge told him that owen was behind this rib that val wasn't even aware was a never rib. heard that oh okay okay I'll, I'll really? tell it to you in a very short uh form so essentially val was in a hotel uh, he was signing autographs and this guy with really scraggly hair with a whole stack of pictures wanted Val to sign all these pictures. And Val said, I'm not signing all those because you just want to sell them and make money. Uh, and so Val went up to his room and the next thing, Val gets a phone call. And it's apparently this guy who's in the lobby saying, you better come down here and sign these pictures. I'm telling you right now. And Val's like, I don't appreciate you calling my room. Go away, please. Thank you. Hung, hung up the phone phone calls again a couple minutes later it's the same guy again you better sign these pictures i i'm a big guy you don't want to mess with me you know you better come down here right now otherwise i'm gonna kick your ass and val's like wait right there hangs up the phone val puts his clothes back on he was all ready for bed he storms down the stairs he doesn't even take the elevator and as he goes down there he storms into the lobby of the hotel and he's looking around and he sees Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart sitting on two stools outside of a closed bar. 
And he says, have you guys seen a guy with this long hair with a stack of pictures? And, and I was like, oh, I saw a guy run out the door a couple of minutes ago. And Val ran out the front door of the hotel and couldn't find him and went back to his room and he couldn't get back to sleep for hours. And he was so mad about it. And then all this time, like it had to have been a year, I think Val said, all this time later, just as he was about to go on the air with you, Owen must have uh, messaged or, or got a, some sort of a phone call through to Edge, who was with him, and said, tell Val now that it was me that made the phone call to his room in the hotel. <laughs> that is uh, that is a great story. I I did <laughs> I don't think I knew that story. I mean, it's it's twenty years ago now, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, now Val was an interesting, very smart guy. Uh, I don't know what he does now. Uh, what was his name? What, Sean Morley. His, I was about to say Sean Morley, and there was an NFL player named Sean Morley as well. So that's why I hesitated. But Sean Morley was a super smart guy, uh, and. There was uh, there was a big division between him and I because I would lean left on the political spectrum, and he leaned uh, at least the way I interpreted very far right. So like it wouldn't surprise me if he was a Trumper now. Uh, and yeah. I I so whenever we talked about anything, he kind of like there was always this sort of like disagreement between us. Not that it was a big deal, not that I saw him that many times. But it was, uh, you know, I, I could tell the difference between his mindset and my mindset. But I also thought he was really smart and really well-spoken. And uh, I really enjoyed the challenge of talking to that guy. Absolutely. What does he yeah, do think, now? What does I he do now? He's, I think he has a, uh, a dispensary uh, for marijuana. I think that's what he's doing. He's uh, pretty big into that and uh, calls himself Captain Cannabis or something like that on the internet. I don't know. And do you know where he lives? Um, I can't remember now. Okay. I can't remember. I mean, not that it matters, but I find that funny too, that, you know, most people who lean right, uh, especially, you know, pretty far right, you know, were not exactly pro-legalization of marijuana. Uh, and now he's making his business from it, but I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's really <laughs> successful because like I said, he's a super bright guy and I liked him a lot. Very cool. Uh, we're getting kind of to the tail end here, Michael. I've really appreciated your time. This has been so much fun. Um, before we start talking a little bit about Sick Not Weak uh, and, 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 and mental health, which is something I really want to talk okay, to you about. Okay, let me jump in here and say sure. this, that um, you don't have to feel obligated. I didn't come on here to like to promote anything. I, I, came I on wanted here to because, talk about it. Okay, shut up. I'm talking. Okay, please do not <laughs> interrupt me. I'm allowed to interrupt you um, with this is the Landsberg interruption. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second here. You're saying that you feel obligated to talk about mental health. I was just giving an example. What I'm saying is you can skip that and we could do this again because I'm, I'm loving it, especially from the whole ADHD thing. I've been um, I've become I've become a big fan of yours just throughout this conversation. So if you want to do a part two sometime, happy to talk about that. If you want to keep talking about wrestling. Oh, that's cool, Michael. I just I just want to, I kind of felt like I wanted this part to be kind of like the main event of the interview because it was it's an important thing for me. And uh, but I would still love to do a part two with you okay. at some point. Uh, Ask me anything you want. Uh, do you have any other stories of your time interviewing professional wrestlers? Something that uh, maybe uh, uh, other people out there might not know about that uh, might be interesting. Uh, yeah, 
I've, I probably, I, I would have to limit it to, uh, you know, like I, I could probably think of 20 amazing stories um, that happened um, just from getting to know wrestlers and from getting to know them in a way outside of what you would see on television, right? Uh, I, I got to know China pretty well. Uh, she first came in to do off the record. She was there with, uh, with Triple H and they came in. I can remember greeting them at the door and he was super nice. I, I don't know if he's remained super nice. I, I, I mean, I haven't seen him in, in years. Um, and I, I, I found her to be immediately, I kind of felt bad for her. There was just something sad about her. Uh, and then uh, she came back a few other times when she was still uh, WWE. And then she came back afterwards. Uh, I asked her about uh, about the breakup, about how, you know, like, how are you doing with the fact that, you know, he left you for um, for Stephanie McMahon. And I mean, being left someplace by someone for somebody else is hard no matter what but you know given how public it was and all of that and i i could you know i could see that she was devastated by it and i almost felt bad asking the question uh but i i thought it was important to find out how she's doing and the answer was she wasn't doing well and then she came back i guess a couple of years later and i could tell that you know she was doing even worse and then uh i guess she went on to do some things that seemed to hint of desperation uh, and, uh, you know, she ended up dying and, uh, I find it heartbreaking uh, to think about, you know, this woman that first walked in this woman who, who, who blew up way out of proportion to, I think, anything that we had ever seen before, right? She became like instantly this mythical personality, uh, and, uh, that would be really hard for anyone to cope with especially this goes back to the story I was telling you before, how if you define yourself as the, what was she the, what wonder of the world? Uh, ninth she, the, wonder. She, she was the ninth wonder of the world. If that's how you see yourself, if, if you think, oh my God, this is so great. They're calling me the ninth wonder of the world. Uh, and that's taken away. It's going to fuck you up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that, that, that was always such a tragic story, especially I don't know if you saw the documentary that ended up going out about yeah. her and how uh, a lot of the people involved with that documentary were not helping her situation that that got me really upset. Um, yeah, me they too. Should have, they should have been more responsible with. OK, so here's what we should do. You just throw out some names of uh, of wrestlers uh, and I'll give you uh, I'll give you two lines. Yeah, like I'm going to stick to two lines. I'll just give you a fast <laughs> comment or a fast story. So just toss out a name. Mean Gene Oakland. Uh, you know, Mean Gene loved him. And he lived in Sarasota. And when I went down with my family every year to Sarasota, a place called Siesta Beach, which is where he was actually from, uh, we would go at Christmas time with my parents. Uh, I told him we were coming down and we met for a beer. And uh, I kind of I, I kind of loved it. I kind of thought, oh, this is so cool. It's so cool to get to know somebody, uh, you know, that you have talked to in a professional sense. Yeah, I've, I've watched a little bit of uh, the, uh, you had him and uh, Goldberg and another guy on the show. And as soon as you introduced him, just that voice, that iconic voice. Yeah. Well, hello there, Michael. Uh, it's right. I just, right. I By just the way, me. Goldberg walked in and apologized to me, like right away. He said, 
uh, dude, I'm, I'm sorry, but um, I haven't slept in two days, so I'm, I'm not very sharp. And he was a crappy guest, actually. You know, I just thought, um, you know, it kind of explained it, right? You know, when you're super exhausted, you kind of lose your personality, lose your edge, lose your fire. But um, I, I think it was because we had done all these wrestling interviews and guys wanted to do them, right? It was like, oh, it's really cool. I want to go on and I want to be treated with that kind of respect. And I want people to ask me challenging questions. So it was like he came in and uh, made an excuse right away for why he wasn't going to be any good. Keep going. Next name. Uh, I have to mention another Canadian hero, Trish Stratus. Trish, uh, the first time I ever met Trish, TSN signed a new deal with Raw uh, or with WWF at the time, uh, and they wanted to announce it and they wanted us to do a show dedicated to this announcement. So we set up in front of what was uh, then the Sky Dome, now the Rogers Center, um, you know, for for viewers. Uh, WrestleMania was there. It's like it's, you know, this uh, this massive um, stadium. And we set up out front and fans were invited down. So it was like really cool situation. And uh, guests on that show were uh, Owen Hart. I I'm trying to remember, I think Edge. Uh, and we needed a woman um, to be on. And we wanted, we were, so we were looking for a woman who was attractive because that's, you know, one of the things that I may, may not be that proud of it, but that's one of the things that we looked for. I mean, we put, we put, you know, people who were attractive and not attractive, uh, you know, our, our show was probably half female over the years, but back then, uh, especially in the wrestling world, we, we thought, you know, is there anyone who can talk to wrestlers uh, who won't be intimidated by them, uh, who understands wrestling, uh, who is uh, an attractive woman? And uh, we called some magazines and we called this magazine called Oxygen. And I didn't typically do this because we had a couple of guest bookers, but uh, I ended up talking to them. And I said to the woman who was the editor, I said, anyone you can suggest? And she said, yeah, you know, we have this Trish Stratus. I said, oh, okay. And she said, you know, take a look on the Don Valley Parkway. So that's a north south route in Toronto at the billboard that's almost down, uh, you know, right at the very end at Lake Ontario. Uh, so, uh, I said, well, I don't have to look at it. You know, uh, you know, if you think she'll be a great guest, great. And then I, you know, subsequently was driving past this billboard and you could tell that she had this magnetism about her. So she, uh, she comes on, uh, we book her for the show. I've never met her before. I remember taking her aside and saying, uh, you know, like I, 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 you know, I don't know how difficult this is for you, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm in your corner, right. You know, like I want you to feel comfortable. I want you to feel like, Hey, you can be yourself and you can do whatever you want with that. You know, if you want to ask questions, just however you want to handle it. And she said, thank you. And make no mistake. Um, this is going to be my first step on the ladder climbing to uh, success in uh, WWF. Uh, and I thought it was really cool. Like this wasn't sort of bragging. Uh, this was just confidence. Uh, she had a game plan and she executed it. And she was amazing because she's smart. The thing about Trish is that um, she has 
all kinds of skills physically, obviously she was, you know, really good in the ring. Um, she's really good with the mic, but she's also really smart. And that was the start of her career because um, the head of WWF Canada, Carl DeMarco, um, called Vince McMahon up afterwards and said, hey, Vince, you got to watch this woman, Trish Stratus. And that was the start for her. And, you know, I mean, she always mentions that when she's interviewed and I, I she owes us nothing. She owes me nothing. I mean, she's the one that made something out of it. We, we did 4,000 shows. You know, how many people went on to use us as a stepping stone to a career? Uh, probably, I don't know, 20 or 30 of them, but that's it. So, you know, it's not a given just because you're on national TV that you can use that to launch a career that you want. And second of all, on that show uh, at, at the Skydome, Owen Hart was a guest. And Owen said to me, um, I know, you know, uh, you get to know Brent, Brett pretty well. And, you know, he, uh, he really likes you. And I just want to let you know that I'm not a lifetimer. I mean, this is heartbreaking. I'm not a lifetimer when it comes to uh, wrestling. I'm doing this. Uh, I'm going to make enough money and I'm going to retire and I'm going to hang out with my family. You know, this is an investment for me in my, in my future. And no other wrestler ever said that to me. No other wrestler. Oh, Trish kind of, I, I always felt it with Trish that she wasn't a lifetimer. But it just, it, you know, it just becomes so heartbreaking when you realize that this one guy who, um, who knew that he was going to find his way out, which is a tough thing for almost every wrestler, um, that he lost the best part of his life because he had planned to use it to be with his family. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, it's, that is, it is a heartbreaking thing considering where he wanted to be in his life post wrestling. Um, but uh, again, also thank you for sharing about Trish. I just, I feel like Trish had the X factor, had the it factor. I guarantee you, not even just back then, even now she walks into any room and everyone's going to have a look at her because they're, they're going to be like, who is that? And if they don't already know who she is, she has. The yeah. X I mean, she, yeah, she has a, a beauty to her um, that, when you get to know her, um, starts from the inside out. Like yeah. she's, uh, at, I mean, I, 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 she's, she's super smart, as I said before, but also um, she has, uh, she has a kindness and a smile, which says to you, you know, I'm happy to be here. Uh, I just, uh, I kind of think the world of her. Yeah. She's awesome. She's just a, such a sweet person. And uh, that, that that's just great stuff, Michael. I'll bring up another another name here, Mick Foley. One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite guys. Uh, period. Regardless of uh, where they came from, I mean, as you know, I told you, we interviewed virtually every imaginable um, occupation, so to speak. You know, wrestling and every professional sport, and actors and musicians and politicians. I mean, and you know, out of all of that, four thousand shows, uh, Mick was one of my favorite guys. Top, prob top ten for sure. Uh, probably all would be tied for first. I mean, the thing I loved about Vic Mick was that he was super, super gentle, thoughtful, yet candid. You know, sometimes gentle and thoughtful means that you're not going to be honest. And sometimes to be honest, you have to say things about people that that you don't like, right? That maybe you don't want to say that, hey, you know what, I really dis I, I really do not respect 
fill in the blank of a name, but he would do it. You know, he would talk candidly about guys that he didn't like, uh, but he would say it in such a gentle way that um, you're going, oh my gosh, I think he's giving us gold here, but um, you know, he's, he's not framing it like, okay, you know, this is going to be a big deal. So get ready for it. Uh, you know, really nice to me. Uh, uh, we invited him to come up uh, and he kept doing the show, even though we didn't have Ron anymore, because we would just fly him up from his home. And he said, well, you know, one, one time he said, uh, yeah, I'll come up. But, you know, uh, I'm not sure if it was him or his son. He said, uh, you know, could you ever find a way to get me into a Blue Jays batting practice? And, you know, I could take some swings. And I said, so you'll come up if we do that? And he said, yeah. I said, done. Because, you know, like that's a celebrity like him. They're not going to they're not going to say no, because uh, they know probably, you know, guys who are players on the team are going to go, oh, my gosh, that's that's mankind. That's Mick Foley. So uh, he ended up writing books. So we got him through his uh, his um, his publisher. So we ended up remaining in a relationship with him, uh, even though we had no relationship with WWE. Really cool. And we will continue this kind of, uh, I'll, I'll name somebody and then you tell me a story the next time we have you on the show, Michael. Uh, but I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about um, mental health. Uh, this is kind of a loaded question, I suppose. When did you first know that you weren't like other people and you had anxiety and depression? And also, could you tell me eventually, uh, as, as the years went by, how maybe you, you've kind of figured out how to get through a dark period when you face it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you could, you could now, and uh, you could go and sit back and let me carry the show for the next half hour, because this is, you know, like this is, first of all, I'm talking about my own life. So people always say, do you want me to tell you the questions in advance? I'm going to ask you, I go, holy shit, who, who, when you're asking questions about my life, who needs to know in advance? You know, like if I don't, can't answer them, something's wrong with me. Um, so to speed through it, uh, anxiety all my life, my earliest memories as a kid have me, um, you know, not doing certain things that other kids did because of my anxiety. And I had no idea that I had something called general anxiety disorder because I didn't know it existed because I never talked to anyone. I never met anybody who had um, similar symptoms because no one talked about it, even though the kid sitting beside me in class perhaps was going through what I was going through, but I never spoke to anyone. I just sat on it. Uh, and it was a factor in my life. It prevented me from doing things. I wouldn't go to camp because of anxiety. It prevented me from doing doing uh, a lot of things that other kids did. So fast forward through uh, into my adult years into having kids, and I, I still had this um, real struggle with anxiety, but uh, you know, I found ways to cope with it as an adult. But then my daughter got sick. Uh, she has, or had, but still has a chronic eye condition that threatened her vision. She lost her vision in one of her eyes. So at one time she uh, was legally blind in both eyes and I just fell apart and never, uh, I never learned how to handle it. I never, like to this day, I, I still will do almost anything, but to actually really think about it, even though I'm talking about it now, I'm not thinking about, you know, uh, my fears and how it felt. Uh, I still wake up at four o'clock in the morning, panicked because of it. Um, so what I found was that massive anxiety led to depression. So if my anxiety went unchecked for a long period of time, all of a sudden I started to fall into a different hole or maybe deeper into the same hole. 
And it was actually uh, the first year of Off the Record. Uh, I came to the conclusion, I'm going to say eight months after I probably should have known there was something wrong. I came to the conclusion that something's wrong with me because the producer of the show, Bob Makowitz, who moments ago I spoke to on the phone, who's still my buddy, called me and said, hey, do you want to go screen the movie together? Because when you had an, a guest on who was an actor, like I mentioned Vin Diesel before, uh, you would have to screen the movie they were promoting, you know, before they would be on your show. And I, I said, no, I, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't go. And then I hung up the phone and I thought, why did I do that? Why, why did I just say no to something that, uh, that I, I love doing? Like, who doesn't want to go to a movie for free, you know, um, sitting in there, um, you know, screening this movie so you can talk to the actor? I mean, like, who would say no? And Carl, I started to um, sort of forensically evaluate my own life the previous six, eight months. And I started to think about all the things that I had uh, rejected, all the things that I used to like to do that I was no longer doing, how I would retreat, how I would look for opportunities um, to, to get away from people in my life. Uh, and I never thought about it at the time, but then I put it together and I realized something's really wrong with me. And I knew what it was. I knew it was depression. But that lesson has taught me to tell that story <clears throat> because people will hear it just like you did before on the ADHD. People will hear it and go, I, I think he's talking about me. Wow. Uh, because mental illness doesn't hit you like the stomach flu hits you. Like you get hit by the stomach flu. You don't go, what's wrong with me? I, I don't know. There seems to be something wrong with me, but depression <clears throat> in particular can happen so slowly that you don't notice it happening. Like taking a bath, you're in the bath, the bath is nice and warm. And then after 10 minutes, the bath is not nice and warm, but you didn't notice it changing. Uh, that's depression. And that's why this story is so important because people can realize I, I should probably think about this because you know I'm kind of not the same person that I was. So that was the start for me of this now lifelong battle where uh, I went for help, God help. Uh, I <clears throat> medication gave me my life back, even though medication is far from perfect. Uh, and then I went off the meds as everybody does. And then I relapsed and went back on and we went back and forth or I went back and forth until 2008 when uh, I, I have this tattooed onto my arm. Uh, 112408YULMH5210400. Uh, that's November 24, 2008. YUL is the Montreal Airport Code. Uh, MH521 is Marriott Hotel Room 521-0400 is 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, I have that because that was the lowest point for me. And I realized why people take their own lives, you know, sitting on the edge of my bed in Montreal where we were shooting off the record. Uh, I went, wow, you know, this is so painful. Uh, and it had been about a year of that pain for me that I thought, okay, well, I have been through this before. So I do have a measure of hope uh, because I have been not quite this deep into the hole, but I've been, you know, really sick and I've found a way to make it back. So I had a little hope that I would, but if I would have been hopeless, uh, I would have said, you know, okay, well, I, I, you know, like at some point, I'm not going to be able to go on with this because of the amount of pain that I'm in.
And that was obviously hugely significant. And then I'd never spoken about depression, uh, mental illness at all on television on off the record, because I thought no one would care. I thought it'd be like, oh, yeah, Landsberg, he knows that we think he's a jerk. And now he just wants us to feel sorry for him. It wasn't that it, 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 it was a little bit of that, but it wasn't shame or embarrassment. I, I didn't care who knew everybody in my life did. And then the next year on, uh, in October, so almost a year later, when I was feeling better, I was interviewing a hockey player and I knew he battled depression in the 1990s. And I said to him, hey, Stefan, Stefan Riche was his name. Would it be okay if I asked you how you're doing with depression? And he said, I'd rather not talk about it. It's very painful. And I said, I'm glad I asked you in advance. I don't want to cause you pain, but if you'll talk about it, I'll talk about it. And he said, well, what would you talk about? And I told him a bit about me. Uh, and I mean, this story could, could, uh, could go in a million different directions, but I'll just tell you the one direction. Um, the show went and he talked a bit about it, like for a minute. And then I said, Hey, you know, thank you for sharing that. Actually, I understand exactly what you're talking about because I've been through as recently as, you know, 10 months ago, exactly the same thing. And, uh, you know, I think it's really, really powerful for me to hear you talking about it. And that was it. Uh, and then the show went to air and I started getting emails uh, and they all said basically the same thing. Hey, Michael, watching you and Stefan Riche talk about your battle with depression was the first time in my life I've seen two men talking openly and candidly and without shame and without embarrassment and without seeming weak. And because of that, I'm sharing with you. And Carl, learning that, <clears throat> learning that, that I had, as does everybody who has the illness and has a platform to talk about it. I realized that I could change somebody's life and save somebody's life just by telling my story, that it was so empowering to other people to hear someone talk about what's been going on in their head. All of a sudden, that sense of loneliness is gone because they feel understood. Uh, I realized, you know, the next day after that show went to air that my life has changed. I said, you know, like, I got to use this. This is what, what a, the worst thing in my life, depression, you know, can become one of the best things in my life. And that's kind of been my life since 2009. Sorry for going on too long, but it's a fucking awesome story. So I take back my apology. I'm not sorry for that at all. Good, Michael. No, I really appreciate you sharing that. Uh, and I know I've, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I wanted to kind of share my experience with you and, and also I a want to hear. experience that I had with a friend. But uh, uh, so uh, it, when I was growing up, up until I would say I was 12, 13 years old, ultimately happy, uh, never, never felt that feeling uh, every day when I woke up again. I, I've never been that way again. Uh, when I was 14, that's when everything changed for me in high schools in grade nine and uh, I just wasn't the same and I'd never felt the same joy that I used to feel. And I guess I, I didn't even really realize, I didn't realize there was anything wrong. Uh, I thought everyone else was wrong. Um, and then I got into my early twenties and I was very dramatic all the time. Uh, uh, fits of rage, just, just, just not being a normal human being uh, just couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And uh, it was such a, 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 a long time until I finally kind of started to figure out what was going on. And, and that was no help of, of, of doctors or, or, or anybody giving me any advice. I just kind of slowly started to figure out, okay, this is probably something that I've got. And I knew that every day when I woke up, this is how I looked at it. Every day I wake up and I get dealt a, a, a hand of cards. Uh, and I might get uh, given a, a good hand. I might be given a bad hand. 
Uh, and I knew when I was getting a bad hand, I knew that I'd probably be spending a lot of that day watching Seinfeld, making myself laugh all day, just to, just to try and keep myself from uh, feeling, uh, I guess, it, uh, dark about life. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose, you know, all this time, you know, I, I did go talk to psychologists and all that, <clears throat> especially during times in my life where I didn't feel joy in anything. Uh, and it did help to a certain extent. Um, but I think finally now, um, finding out about the ADHD, and uh, getting out of these brain fogs that I would always find myself in. Um, it has really improved a whole lot of my life since then. And it has only been about three months. Um, so, you know, that's kind of like in a nutshell, uh, 20 plus years of, of pain and anguish. But, um, you know, when, when I, I, I was on Twitter and I saw your name pop up and I clicked on, on your name because i was like oh michael landsberg what's he up to and as soon as i saw it i was like okay that's my brother right there he knows what i've been through and yep. uh and i hope that he can find out what i've been through because again uh communicating this and hopefully people out there that watch this interview this will help them as well just as you've said it will for sure thank you for sharing that uh, just like you thank me for sharing uh, your story, uh, uh, the story of your pain can be medicine for somebody else. Because unlike almost any other thing in life, uh, there is this feeling of mental illness that somehow it's self-inflicted. So people think to themselves, uh, well, this is my fault. You know, I shouldn't be depressed because I have all these great things in my life and I shouldn't be depressed because people have it worse than me. So there's this feeling of uh, self-inflicted. There's this feeling of shame that somehow, you know, it's like, well, you know, like, I can't believe I'm letting this take me down. You know, it's so embarrassing, right? Because if you could do a blood test and show depression, no one would believe that, okay, well, it's, it's make-believe or that it's made up. So the power that you have just by telling your story is to say to someone else, I understand you. When you say, okay, the loss of the ability to experience joy, that is the most profound aspect of depression. We all experience that. Like, like I don't mean some. I've probably spoken, let's say, 300 times to live audience. So if there was 500 people in the audience each time, you're talking about thousands of people. And I will always say, how many of you have battled a mental illness like depression or anxiety or ADHD or, or OCD? Uh, and uh, some people put up their hands. You know that there's more out there. And I say, okay, I'm going to tell you what depression has felt like to me. If it hasn't hit you this way, put up your hand and tell me, right? Say, no, no, I haven't experienced that. No one has ever put up their hand. Not one person has ever said, no, I didn't lose the ability to experience joy. If you are listening, watching right now and thinking to yourself, do I feel the same joy? Ask yourself, okay, what's something in your life that makes you typically just brings you a basic joy? You know, I call it the basic joy test. You know, what is it? For me, a sip of coffee in the morning. When I take a sip of coffee, I think to myself, oh, that was good, right? It's not like I go, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. I just, you know, it brings me a little joy. You know, when, when, um, when my dog Wrigley comes up to he was here before, comes up and puts his head on my lap. That brings me a little bit of joy, just basic joy. And you need to ask yourself, uh, when was the last time that I felt basic joy? 
from that basic aspect of life? And if the answer is, uh, it's been a couple of years, that is a sign that you need to go for help. You know, suicide is the greatest tragedy that we can experience from mental illness, obviously. But it's not the only tragedy. It's tragedy to give up your life, whether it be six months or a year or five years, to your illness. If, if you have the sense of shame that prevents you from coming out and sharing, and you are um, living without joy, that's tragic. Because for most people, or for many people, there's help right? You know, I mean, it's, it's not like you have this illness that can't be treated. Not everyone can be treated and not everyone, you know, you know, has, has, uh, you know, a great result from treatment, but most people can get help. And it's tragic if you're listening right now and going, he's talking about me or they're talking about me, but you know, I don't, I don't want to tell anyone. I can't tell my boss. I can't tell my parents. I can't tell my spouse because I'm embarrassed. Absolutely, Michael. Thank you so much for uh, having a conversation with me about that. And I guess the last thing I wanted to mention about as far as mental health is concerned is that uh, uh, this last Saturday morning I woke up, I, I had not had a very good night's sleep, but I woke up from a phone call from a friend who was crying over the phone and needed somebody there then and there. Uh, and they live like about 40 minutes away. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to drive uh, because I'm having some problems driving lately. Again, with uh, some of the, this anxiety that's been going on with me lately, I've been having a hard time driving on highways. Um, but anyway, so I took an Uber all the way there and they just needed to talk to someone, get it out of their system and also hear from me. So when I kept, when I said something like, oh, sorry, I keep talking about myself. I said, no, 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 please. Like it's helping. It's helping. So, you know, I don't think that my friend was very well aware of what I'd been through over the years. And I think it really helped her a lot. So, uh, and now she seems to be on a good path since Saturday. So, yeah, I just wanted to say that as well. You know, you, you, uh, you need to stay on her about it, right? Um, you know, sometimes, you know, we can come to this epiphany, like, oh my gosh, you know, if I don't get treatment, I'm going to, you know, I, I might, I might take my own life. Right. Uh, and so you're kind of aware of it at that point. And then if you get a little bit of help, sometimes you can just go, okay, I'm fine now. Uh, yep. and it's rarely that easy, uh, yep. but you know, good for you for doing what not a lot of people would have done, which is, you know, getting an Uber What that cost, by the way, uh, in, you know, where you are, what did a 40 minute Uber ride cost? I think it cost about $40 Australian. Oh, it would have been way more here, but um, uh, that's a really important story. And here's, here's why I think it resonated so much. First of all, you, you showed that you cared, which people who are really far into the hole believe that nobody cares. Uh, and you made her feel like she was understood. And that I was giving a speech in uh, in Edmonton. Have you heard of Edmonton? I imagine you have, right? Yeah, yeah. of course. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I, I don't know what your level of knowledge is about Canada um, because my level of knowledge about Australia is, I mean, I know a fair amount, but not everything, obviously. But I, I was giving a talk and this was like four years ago. And this woman came up to me afterwards and she was just sobbing miserably. And I said to her, I said, you know, I, I you know, talk to me, tell me, tell me what you're thinking that, you know, has you so emotional. She 
couldn't talk. So she came back about 10 minutes later. I said, look, you know, I'm going to stay here till, till you talk to me. Uh, she came back and through these tears, all I heard was for the first time in my life, I feel understood. And that was a lesson to me that sharing, not just the name, you know, I have depression or I have anxiety or I have ADHD, um, but really what does it feel like to me can be hugely important to somebody else who has felt that and they think like no one could understand me. But you went, you know, to your friends and you made her feel understood. And that can be the biggest thing. Absolutely. I've been on her every day since then. Uh, so I, I'll continue to be there for her. Uh, and it was, it was important for me when someone reached out like that, because about four years ago, I had another friend who was kind of in a similar situation and I was always there. But then there was that last time that they decided not to reach out. And that was kind of a quite a devastating part of my life, but, um, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a reminder, not that you needed it, but it's a reminder of the stakes we're playing with that, you know, mental illness is not just, you know, a crappy day. Mental illness is a serious illness. Think about this, that if, if a person, if you are like, say high school student, you call it high school or secondary school, what do you call it? Uh, high grade? school. Yeah. Okay. So high school, if you're a high school student, or you're the parent of a high school student. Think about this, that if your kid is going to have a serious illness while your kid is in high school, those, those years, the chances are by far the greatest that it will be a mental illness because you know kids that age don't get heart disease the way adults get heart disease they don't die of cancer the same way adults do even though i mean kids can get cancer it's still it's much less common in a 17 year old so if you think about all the things you worry about for your kids the number one thing that you should probably be worried about is their mental health and that's the number one thing that you can actually make a difference in by making it part of the discussion. It's, it's not nearly respected enough or feared enough, because if you feared it, you would do something about it. Parents talk to their kids all the time about, you know, sex and safe sex and drinking and drinking and driving and getting a good education and all of those things. But do you ever use the word mental illness, the two words, do you ever use the word suicide? Do you make it part of the discussion? Because chances are, if your kid is going to die at that age, the number one thing is suicide. And yet we don't talk about it. Yeah, well said there, Michael. I appreciate uh, having a, a discussion about this with me. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get off this subject now. We're getting very close to the end here. And, and as I, I spoke to you about before we uh, started recording here, I wanted to pretend for a moment that we're on off the record right now. And we've got Michael Landsberg is going to give that, that open to the show and introduce his guest. And then I want you to give me a hard hitting question. Just, it's just for me. It's just for me. Really. Okay. Yeah, I understand. Okay. Um, what's the name of your show again? Uh, the Insiders Edge podcast. The Insiders. Joining us right now is Carl. The uh, Insiders Edge podcast uh, is his I got to ask you, when I first watched your podcast, I thought, why does he think that he's an insider? Why does he think that, that people actually care what he says? How, how would you answer that? 
Well, Michael, I mean, I'd have to say the you know, first of all, name this show the Insiders Edge podcast because uh, you know uh, I like the Outsiders, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. So uh, we thought the Outsiders, the Insiders, the Insiders Edge. We get the inside scoop on people. Yeah, I didn't ask you though. Whoa, 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 whoa! I told you the whoa, whoa, whoa is a Landsberg thing. Uh, I didn't ask you why you chose the name. I'm asking you why you feel. Uh, you have earned the right to talk to people from the inside about a subject that's really important to them. Because I'm damn good at it, Michael. That's the answer I was hoping for. You, you know, the answer, sometimes you push people, you know you're going to push them uh, and they're going to get, you know, maybe a little pissed off, but that pissed off reaction is uh, is is really good. You know, uh, <laughs> I get asked the question all the time, who, you know, who's your favorite guest? Uh, okay, uh, who's who 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 is a worse guest? And I say there, there's no such thing as a bad guest except for a boring guest. You know, it doesn't matter whether guest hates my guts. It doesn't matter whether you know whether the guest, however he reacts, if it's not if it's lively, if it's interesting, then I love the guy. Even though there were tons of guests who uh, who I didn't particularly write alike, I didn't feel like to me I had anything in common with them, but I tried to find a common link. But the ones, you know, I always hated were the ones that sucked because, you know, the goal, whether it be, you know, the Insider's Edge podcast or off the record or anything else, your goal is, is to entertain people and to find a way as the host of the show, to find a way to make it entertaining. And sometimes you can't make it like a nine out of 10, but if it's heading towards a three out of 10 and you can make it a five, then you have justified your presence as the host of the show. Absolutely. There have been a lot of occasions over the years, well, the last couple of years that I've been doing this, that uh, I, I'm feeling like mm, I haven't hooked them yet. i gotta, I got to hook them. Uh, I feel like they're, they're just kind of going through the motions and then I get them. And then finally I get them to to uh, to, to, to give me everything that they got. So it, it, that is interesting, Michael. Uh, but right here, right now, Michael, I've got the final segment on this show. It's about learning about your favorite things. Your favorite things in life uh, is for it's kind of like a quick fire question for quick fire answer. Michael Landsberg, who is your favorite professional wrestler of all time? Uh, I would say uh, Bret Hart. Excellent choice. Uh, the next one's usually favorite opponent when I have a pro wrestler on the show, but favorite in favorite person to interview. You know, the smarter they are, uh, the tougher they are the better I've enjoyed it because I can be myself, my best, right? No one's going to say, oh, you were a bully to Vince McMahon because Vince, they know, you know, can not only handle it, but can probably beat me in most arguments, eh, some arguments. Um, so I would say a guy like Vince McMahon or Dana White, you know, guys that will come back hard, that makes for really good television. And now I can try my hardest to back him into a corner. Wait a second here, Vince. You say you didn't lie to Brett, but then you just told me you agreed beforehand that the match would be a draw in the Survivor Series. I don't understand. Isn't that a lie? And he said, no, I didn't lie to him. I go, well, you told him one thing and then you did something else. That's a lie. And he went, yeah, I guess I guess it is. <laughs> I couldn't do that to somebody who was 
who, who wasn't capable of fighting back. Otherwise, you know, the producer, Bob, used to say to me in my ear all the time, don't be a bully, don't be a bully. So I know that was more than a quick fire answer, but it was a fucking awesome answer. So I'm not going to apologize for it at all. You don't need to apologize because I thought it was an awesome answer as well. Uh, next one, Mr. Landsberg, favorite professional wrestling match of all time that you've seen? Um, was it Brett and Shawn Michaels in London? Uh, am I, I mean, I, 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 I'm not an expert on this, on recalling my favorite match, but am, am I right to remember about, this? Are we talking about Bretton Bulldog at Wembley Stadium? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, I, I thought, it, I thought it was, uh, Brett Michaels, but, uh, I will, uh, I will, I will say yes. Um, Wembley Stadium, uh, was such an amazing site for this and, uh, yeah, I'll go with that. Cool. And for everyone out there, when he said Brett Michaels, he meant Brett Michaels, not Brett Michaels from Poison. Uh, what did I mean? Oh, yeah. Brett, yeah. Brett Michaels Marcus. from Poison was actually a guest on Off the Record once. Uh, and he uh, he was on with uh, somebody from Skid Row, uh, a porn star and a football star. And I thought it was I thought this was like the ultimate panel right four people from different walks of life um all sort of coming together um with nothing in common except the fact that they were on this tv show together so yeah brett michaels uh was uh the lead singer of poison good for you for knowing that <laughs> yeah i'm big on my hair metal unfortunately i don't have any hair anymore uh moving away from wrestling now michael do you have a favorite book uh word of honor by uh nelson demille uh, word of honor changed the way I looked at war. It was uh, Nelson DeMille was in Vietnam uh, and became a prolific writer. He's had like, I don't know, probably 20 bestsellers. Word of honor was the first one that I read by him. He was actually promoting a book and he was a guest on Off the Record. And uh, I said to him when, when he showed up, I said, you know, not, may not be professional, but oh my God, you're Nelson DeMille. Oh my God, I'm a huge fan of yours. And Word of Honor was my favorite book. And he was a cocky sort of very arrogant writer. And he didn't go, oh, oh thank you very much. That's awesome. <laughs> he went, yeah, it was kind of like, of course it was. <laughs> Excellent, Michael. Uh, do you have a favorite TV show of all time? Favorite TV show of all time. I mean, you mentioned Seinfeld. Hard not to kind of see it that way. Uh, you know, I think this is the glory days of television because of streaming, right? You know, network TV in, uh, in America, um, which is what we see a lot of, obviously, in Canada, is just no, uh, it's just kind of not relevant anymore, right? Because, sorry, my phone was, uh, was ringing. I'm much in demand by my kids. Um, so this is the heyday for, um, you know, for uh, great television, right? You know, whether it's, you know, any of the streaming services or the cable services like HBO, like, uh, like Showtime, like AMC. So that leads me to uh, probably Breaking Bad and uh, Better Call Saul. Um, somehow Vince Gilligan found a way um, to do an encore and give people something that was just as good. So I, I would I would probably say those two shows would be as good an example as anything. But having said that, oh my God, I get Acorn TV. I forgot this, and I get Australian television. Uh, there was a show called Offspring. Am I right? Yeah, Offspring. Yeah, yeah, really liked it. It was about a, a woman who was uh, uh, OBGYN 
who delivered babies in this family that, you know, was like most families kind of crazy. I love that show. And then there was a show that was set in this, a place to, I'm trying to remember the way the last, what was the name of the show? A place to something. And it was set in this, uh, it was this very sort of formal post-World War II um, show with this family that was ultra rich. And I, I, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, the name rings a bell, yeah. Yeah, no, it doesn't. You're just saying that to make me feel no, better. It's I'm place, gonna, yeah, I'm I know gonna, you're talking I'm, about. I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to find it right now. And uh, you're going to talk for about the next 20 seconds. So I can, okay. Uh, while you're finding it, I'll tell you a little it. story. I remember once the TV show Offspring here in Australia kind of went a little bit viral on Twitter and the band, The Offspring, were like, what are you all talking about? What, what's going on here? We have no idea what you're all tweeting about right now, but you're, you're hashtagging us in it. A place to call home. Place to call home, of course. Yeah, well, you see, of course, now you're just being kind. You're going, I never heard no, of it. No, I've never show. heard of it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I actually got pissed off when I watched that. That was the first Australian series that I had sort of dedicated myself to. And I thought to myself, holy shit, this is really annoying. They do better TV than we do in Canada. Like, I thought, <laughs> wow, this show is awesome. So I kind of got hooked on Australian television and have watched a number of series, uh, including A Place to Call Home and Offspring. Very cool. And I would suggest you check out Underbelly, uh, which is kind of like about uh, a lot of the uh, underworld gang kind of stuff from Australia. I think it's some. The early do you series. have Underworld? Hold on. Do you have Underworld in Australia? Do you have, yeah, do you have, we have uh, you know, organized crime? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Well, we did. I can't believe that. It was real bad. There was a lot of gangland uh, uh, murders uh, in the uh, early 2000s kind of era. Um, so there's a whole a TV show series about it. Um, Sorry for disrespecting Australians by saying, <laughs> do you have organized crime? I mean, yeah, I was kind of joking bikies. about that. We got the uh, You call them bikies. We call them bikers. Uh, we <laughs> call them, uh, stay away from them. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, God, we could keep talking forever. We could, we uh, could. But I, I got to continue. What's the name of the show again? Uh, uh, um, uh, sorry, uh, Underbelly. Okay, got it. And I'll message you later and I'll send you some links. Uh, Please do. Keep moving forward here, Michael. Favorite film of all time? Uh, I'm going to say uh, I'm a World War II buff. I, it's a stupid word. What does it even mean? Uh, I'm a student of World War II as a hobby. Uh, so I would say quite possibly Saving Private Ryan. Uh, quite possibly the original version of Judgment at Nuremberg. Uh, and I would say also probably Forrest Gump. Uh, I just watched Forrest Gump last week and I was like, oh my God, this is, it's so good. Tom Hanks is like, this performance is so amazing. It's so well-written. So those would be, uh, you know, a handful of, uh, of my favorite movies. Very nice. Uh, do you have a favorite band or musical artist? You know, I would say, uh, yeah, I mean, not one that stays ahead of others. I went to Pearl Jam a couple of weeks ago here in Toronto, first time I'd seen them alive. And that was, was crazy. It was just, it was so, it was so intimate. Uh, you know, Eddie Vedder was just so, uh, he was so good. He owned the crowd. Uh, I thought that was great. Unfortunately, I had COVID afterwards, but it was worth it. Uh, and, uh, I would say, um, let's go with Pearl Jam. Excellent. And that, that's really cool because Breaking Bad is my favorite TV show and Pearl Jam are very, very much up there as one of my favorite bands of all time. I've seen them five times. 
You uh, call me your brother. We are. <laughs> That's it. We are. Uh, we're getting away from the arts now. Only a few more here to go, Michael. Uh, favorite food? Favorite? I, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I'm not a picky eater. Uh, I don't like fancy food. I don't like going to fancy restaurants. Uh, I don't like getting dressed up to go out for dinner. I don't like sitting at the dinner table for two hours afterwards, uh, this long process. So I'm going to go with kind of basic stuff. Like, um, I mean, I like a good steak. Yeah. Uh, I'm Jewish. So that means I got to say I like spare ribs because they're supposed <laughs> to be forbidden. And we know that forbidden meat is the sweetest meat of all. So let's go with that. <laughs> Very nice. So do you have a favorite place to eat on the road? Uh, yeah, no doubt. That's, this is actually an easy question. A diner. I love diner food. I love pancakes. I love French toast. I love waffles. I love bacon. I love, uh, I, I just, whenever I go, uh, let's say I'm traveling uh, to Calgary to give a talk, which I, I did a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I will ask if there's a hotel that I'm staying at that has a concierge. Sometimes the client, or, you know, the people I'm speaking to book the hotel and they don't have concierge, but like I told you, I'm pretty low maintenance. Uh, I'll always say, what's the best diner in town? And I say, don't give me like, you know, the fancy diner. I mean, a place where, where um, people come up to you and if you've been there four times, they know your name, Michael, you know, the usual. Uh, so uh, I would say without a doubt, diner food, diner for dinner is awesome. Very nice. Three to go here. Uh, fav I don't know if you're a drinker. It's supposed to be favorite alcoholic beverage, but if you don't drink, just your favorite beverage in general. You know, I didn't drink for, uh, you know, depression and drinking aren't necessarily a good thing. Self-medication is a terrible thing, but I was never, I was never a drinker. Uh, I never, I've never been drunk in my life, which most people cannot say, but it was my anxiety that prevented me from, you know, the fear of losing control. But, you know, I, I, uh, I went for about eight years without taking a drink until about four months ago um, when I decided, because I had this link in my head that, that having a drink is making me depressed the next day. Uh, and then uh, I realized that's kind of silly. Like, like there's not that relationship necessarily between it. So uh, I would say beer, you know, I'll, I'll have a beer now. I'll have a beer tonight, maybe uh, before dinner. Very nice. Uh, second last one here. It's, it's, Favorite female body part. But what I mean is when you see a good looking lady, you know, where will Michael Landsberg's eyes go to first? You know, I, I, I first of all, it's a no win question uh, or my answer is not going to uh, ever get me. Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard not to sound creepy to answer that question. No, but, there's, there's uh, meaningful answers, I, I assure you. So, I mean, uh, I, I, I guess it just depends whether said woman is walking towards you or away from you. I mean, your choices are limited. You only see half of somebody's body at a time. Um, but I, I think uh, I, I'm going to say uh, crop top, flat stomach. Flat stomach's pretty good because usually it leads to other nice things. Very good, Mr. Landsberg. Final one here of this uh, segment favorite curse word, Michael. Uh, ah, fuck it. I'll just say it. <laughs> that was it. You know, the word fuck can be so useful in so many different ways. You know, like you have to, you have to use it. Uh, you have to respect the word. 
and you have to you have to make sure that you're not using it gratuitously just because you know you you want to swear like it can be a verb it can be a noun it can be an adjective it can be an adverb all so useful in so many different ways and i thought like that's a fucking great answer so yeah i mean there's an example of using it you know what i said i i, I said to uh um who was it edge i'm trying to tie it into wrestling uh <laughs> he got mad at me because i asked him about steroids and you know what i wanted to say was fuck you man you know like who, like who gets mad at someone asking a question that everybody's talking about i asked you whether you had ever done steroids and you answered honestly and now you're mad at me for answering fuck you i didn't say that but i was thinking <laughs> that excellent michael michael landsberg i want to thank you so much for for being on the insiders edge podcast here it's really meant a lot to me uh, to, to have the chance to talk to you about some of the things you've done. And there's so many more stories that we can uncover if we do a part two in the future. So again, from all the way here in Perth, Western Australia, the most isolated city in the world, I want you to know that you've got a massive fan right here and you've just reached that far, which is, I think, a pretty cool thing. Hey, thanks for having me. Great questions. Uh, thanks for sharing. Uh, you know, the best interviews are not... Uh, are not just take, take, take. Sometimes they're give and take. Uh, you know, to get the best possible answer, sometimes you got to give something of value to that person. Uh, and uh, I felt that today. So thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. And just like wrestlers, like the respect they got from us because you know we learn shit about them. Thank you for that. I felt respected. Well, thank you very much, Michael. And, and thank all of you out there for watching the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WCWA Network. I'm California. This is my new friend, my brother, Michael Landsberg, and we will see you down the road. Thank you.